0: Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit HarvestLakeshore.org. Daniel 7, 9-14 As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, Harvest family. I know things are a little bit different this morning. I want to welcome those of you who are worshiping from home because we're all worshiping from home uh, this morning. So uh, I know we had to make some last minute adjustments, but I'm so grateful to God that we can open up his word this morning as we continue our series in the book of Daniel. Well, we're in Daniel chapter 7, and there's a bit of a change that takes place as we turn the page from chapter 6 to chapter 7. As we have read in the first six chapters, it's uh, called narrative. That's kind of narrative scripture, and what that is is stories about events that actually happened in the lives of individuals uh, as we have studied. And in Daniel 1 to 6, we've seen stories about how Daniel and his friends encountered God, their faithful God, as they interacted with uh, the kings in Babylon. Uh, We learn about Daniel, who is interpreting dreams of others, and he's called upon to interpret dreams of others. But then things shift now as we move to chapters 7 through 12 rather than a narrative, like an unfolding actual story that took place, now we have six chapters of dreams and visions that Daniel had. So rather than dreams and visions coming to someone else that Daniel interprets, Daniel actually has dreams. But also what's happening is they haven't happened in sequence, meaning chapters 1 through 6 happened in order of the events that they took place. But now chapter 7 through 12, some of those things happened during the time or before when some of these other chapters took place. So for example, chapter 7 starts by saying in the first year of King Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So this vision actually took place before chapter 5. Because in chapter five, we remember a bit about King Belshazzar. He was a king who didn't follow what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He was someone, uh, so Nebuchadnezzar, we knew, uh, went through a trial and God humbled him greatly. And then he functionally kind of repented and was giving glory to God. Well, his kingdom had passed away. And now this king, King Belshazzar, is a ruler. And we learn about him at the end of his life, that he was a king who didn't pay attention to what happened before him. And he didn't honor God. He was arrogant towards God. And God found him lacking and wanting and judged him. So right now, uh, things are swirling around for Daniel. Things are confusing for him as he comes and has this vision. He had seen God do amazing things in his life and in the life of his friends, and then all of a sudden, things have changed. There's a new king in place. There's a king who's ruling in a way that doesn't honor God. God. And so his world is is blowing up. He's not quite sure how to maybe even navigate it. Things are changed. His, His role probably has changed from having influence with the previous king to now being under the rule of another king, and things are going to be hard, so the new king isn't ruling righteously, and his whole world seems to be swirling around. Now, in God's providence... He has us in this text of scripture today. I think many of you can probably feel the reality of things swirling around, things being confusing. I don't, don't make sense of the times and things are going on and it feels like a great way. And no, you aren't the first child of God to experience that because Daniel has experienced that before us. And he's experiencing that now. But on top of experiencing that reality, he has a vision that scares him. He has a vision that he wrote down, but this vision is so vivid to him, it sobers him. It, he even says in uh, verse 15, after he talks about the dream, he says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. So he's in an alarming time and he has an alarming dream. And even as Christians now, when we come to a text of scripture like this, it's called apocalyptic scripture. So it's called that because it's talking about events that happen in the future, events that Uh, aren't happening uh, right now. And certainly as Daniel has this vision, these are events that happened in the future for him. They weren't happening at the time, but they were happening in the future. And he saw some things that just didn't make sense to him. And so as we read uh, these verses of scripture, as we come to it, we can feel the same way it can feel a little bit scary. In fact, as I shared with a friend of mine uh, this summer who was asking, what are you going to be teaching through this fall? And I said, well, we're going to be in the book of Daniel. And his first response was, that's scary. And this is why he would have said that's scary, because of passages like this. So open your Bibles, take a look at Daniel chapter 7. I know we've already read uh, verses 9 and following, but let's start in verse 1. As in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So he sees this vision of 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 the stirring up of the seas. So he's actually seeing the seas stirred up and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. So he sees actual beasts and they're different from each other. And it says the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked at its wings. They were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand two stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three limbs in its mouth between its teeth, three ribs rather, in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise and devour much flesh. So even as we read this we can read it quickly, but think he's seeing the actual image of a bear with ribs in his teeth and it's being told to devour much flesh. And after I looked and behold another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. So he sees this beast this leopard with four wings, which doesn't make sense to him because he's never seen anything like that, but it's another freaky thing. And then he goes to verse seven. He says, after I saw this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which three of the horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. I don't know about you, but the first time I read that text, I'm like, what in the world is that all about? That's, that's freaky. Now, something we have to understand with this kind of scripture, meaning this genre of literature, there's different kinds of genres. There's uh, the narrative, like we talked about, the first half of Daniel. There's poetic literature, uh, like we see in uh, the book of Song of Solomon, or even some in Pro- there's wisdom literature in Proverbs. There's songs in the Psalms. And in this kind of literature, there's certainly there's letters that we learn in the New Testament. But this is apocalyptic literature. And when we read apocalyptic literature, we need to have a little bit of an understanding about that kind of literature before we even jump into like kind of some of the things that we need to learn. Because I think even though this is completely uh, confusing to us and we wonder, well, what, what are we supposed to do with this? There are certainties that we're going to look at from this text that we can know. But it's helpful to have a little bit of a background as we're going to be jumping into the next six chapters, this chapter being the first one, of how do we understand this kind of scripture? If you're reading your Bible at home and you come across it, how do you make sense of it? Well, there's two kinds of ways of looking. There's, There's the literal way to look at it, like is this literally happening? Or there's the figurative way to look at it. So Daniel has this vision and he's freaked out because he sees these beasts and he wants to know what in the world are these beasts about? Now, is what he's looking at something that's actually gonna happen? Is he actually gonna see lions and, and, and bears? No, he's not actually gonna see lions and bears uh, because this is figurative. Uh, There are other times in Scripture where someone has a dream that's figurative. If you think about Joseph and his brothers, remember he got the the multicolored coat from his dad and he had this vision about sheaves of wheat falling down. Well, those sheaves of wheat weren't uh, about sheaves of wheat. They were actually about his brothers. So it was a figurative vision. He saw an image. Now, there are times in Scripture where it is literal, but generally speaking, the literal dreams that happen in Scripture are when God's people encounter God, or they encounter Jesus, or they encounter an angel of the Lord. Like, for example, when Abimelech was warned not to sleep with Sarah, who was Abraham's wife. He was warned by an angel in the dream, "Uh, don't do that. It was clear. Or when Solomon was told he could ask for anything, or when Saul was told to stop Uh, When Saul was told to stop persecuting the church or when Ananias was told to go and pray for Saul, you know, in, in those instances, it was either the Lord or Jesus or an angel of the Lord coming and speaking directly. And it was absolutely crystal clear. I want you to do this, or don't do that, or go to Egypt, or go to this place. It's super clear. Those are literal times. That's generally when we see literal things happen in Scripture. But oftentimes, these apocalyptic dreams, they're figurative. They're images that have meaning. And even after we get the interpretation of that meaning, it can still be confusing because Daniel in this book says, says to uh, and, and asks, What does this mean? And uh, it says that in verse 16. It says, I approached the one of those who stood there and I asked him. So in verse 16, asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of things. So we're kind of like on the edge of our seat, okay? We're going to get the interpretation. What in the world does this mean? And he's told these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And then it says, but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws, bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left at his feet. And about the ten horns, and he goes on, and I looked, and the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So even though he asks, "What are these?" we understand them to be images or representations of four kings and four kingdoms. But we aren't actually told what those kingdoms are. We're not told. This is exactly what those kingdoms are. And we can too easily want to try to fill in the blanks. Okay, we want to know what those kingdoms are because we want to know, and so we kind of try to force something in. There's blanks that are left for us, and we try to fill in the blanks. So, some have tried to fill in the blanks and say, well, you know, these kind of match up to earlier on in Daniel. Some of these, some would say, well, these are clearly the kingdoms of Babylon, the kingdoms of the Medes and the Persians, the kingdoms of the Greeks and the Romans. And so because those are, those are clearly what this is talking about, then these events have already happened for us. They were in the future for Daniel, but they've already happened for us. We don't need to be concerned about them whatsoever. This is kind of past. This is like an old story, no history. So you could take that, man, you could fill in the blanks, even though the text of scripture doesn't say exactly what those kingdoms are or you could go and say well no that's not what happened these are yet to come what about hitler what about stalin what about socialist or communist regimes that are happening right now maybe that's who we're talking about or maybe you can get worked up and start to go well wait look at the look at the scripture i mean look it says it's a horn this horn that comes it's a small horn oh well, maybe the small horn means not a, a small nation, maybe it means a nation that's not very old. I mean the United States isn't very old. Maybe, maybe what we just did is we just voted for this horn in the last election, or maybe we're gonna do it in the next election. And you can see how when you try to fill in the blanks that God doesn't fill in, it can lead to some crazy ideas. Can, but the reality is, is God doesn't want us to focus on the things we don't know because focusing on the beasts can lead away from the proper interpretation of the vision whether they are actual kingdoms or whether they represent a symbol of completeness, we know that life in this age will be this way until a new kingdom is ushered in. And so there are some certainties, even though it looks like there aren't certainties, even though it looks like it's confusing, there are some certainties that we do find in this passage that we can hold on to. And the first one is this there will be beasts who rule over our world until the end of this age. There will be beasts that rule over our world until the end of the age. So even as Daniel encountered this vision, it scared him because there was the reality that turmoil was going to take place he was really looking forward to the time when it had been prophesied that they would only be in captivity for 70 years and they would be set free and he's thinking that's when we get to that time frame things are going to get better but this kind of ruffled his feathers a bit, maybe, or put him in a place of concern. Because now, rather than that being a time where things turn the corner, it seems like we're not going to turn a corner, that things might get worse before they get better. And we have to remember as Christians uh, from Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we do. So, so if this turmoil is going to happen, if there's going to be beasts that continue to rule, we could be left with, well, if that's just going to happen, why are we working so hard? Should we, should we just give up? No. Jesus taught us to pray. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be Done when we live gospel centered lives in a land in a day when beasts continue to rule the world, figuratively speaking, when evil seems to be winning out, when we live. In a loving community, loving one another, as Mark preached last week, as we uh, look beyond the faults of one another, and we seek to love one another as Christ loved us. The church displays a culture of a kingdom that's coming. Even though that hasn't fully arrived yet, we don't give up. Rather, we press in because God uses the body of believers to display what his kingdom is going to look like. It's a taste of what that kingdom is going to look like. Therefore, we, we should never put our hopes in elections or in governments. Because there's only one government. And there's only one ruler that's going to do it right. Our hope isn't in those things. We do not need to be duped into the lies that some political stance will make everything better. Because the Bible tells us things are going to get worse not better, before the perfect king comes and until his kingdom is established. Because there will be beasts who rule our world until the end of the age. That doesn't mean we don't do anything. Uh, Should we stand up for those who are oppressed? absolutely should we work to make things right when we're when we're aware that things have gone wrong yes we should do that but will we be able to achieve complete justice in this world and change everything the way it should be no these images show us that we're not going to be able to achieve that because there is only one who can bring about the justice that everyone is longing for. So we can be certain that there will be beasts who rule the world until the end of the age, but we can also be certain that the Ancient of Days will bring about a final and complete and just judgment. He will bring about a final judgment. See, the the angel is not fixating on the identity of the beast. He could have said, hey, Daniel, these represent four kingdoms and these are the names of those four kingdoms. You need to look out for them. No, he is more concerned with unpacking and talking about the ancient of days and the son of man. These are the two figures he points out to Daniel. And we can have our ideas of justice, but God shows his description of what justice is actually going to look like. And it's found right here, as we've already read in the text. But take a look at verse nine. And Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed... And the ancient of days took his seat. This is not some pomp and circumstance of like, oh, a great leader comes walking in the room and music's played, da 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 and he comes and everyone's making a big deal. No, there's a decision that's going to be made. These aren't just folding chairs or cushy chairs like we have here in the room. No, these are thrones and they are put into place. And there is one throne that's put into place that's in a prominent place. It's a different throne than the other thrones because the decision is going to be made and it's going to be made by the ancient of days who took his seat. And the one who's seated in that seat, he's called the ancient of days because he's been around since ages past. He's ageless. We know that those who've lived their lives have wisdom because they have seen a lot and they have learned things. And unfortunately, in our culture, we prize youth over wisdom when we should be prizing wisdom over youth and looking to those who have gone before. But this one, this one just didn't live a lifetime. He's lived a lifetime of lifetimes. And he's got all wisdom. And he has not just wisdom, but righteousness. Because it says his clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. There's a purity about him. We're longing to have, we're longing to have someone like this. And his throne, it says, was fiery flames, and his wheels burning fire and steam. Uh, stream, uh, fire issued, uh, and came out from before him. And this is how great he is. It says a thousand thousands served him. If you do the math correctly, a thousand thousands is a million. Now, there may be judges in places that people serve him. They may have a handful of people that serve the man or woman who is the judge and they they bring things for them, get things for them. This judge has a million people. And there are people who are coming. To hear what the judge's judgment's gonna be. And it says, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. That's 100 million. I don't even know that it's an exact hundred million. It's just displaying how vast a crowd is gathered. And this is not a crowd that's been gathered across the nation to voice their opinion about who they want to be in elected office. No, this is a crowd that's gathered not to voice their opinion. It's a crowd that's gathered to hear an opinion, to hear the opinion of one. million plus people gathered ready for the ancients of days to speak. If you've ever been in a large crowd, it's hard to settle that crowd, but no one had to settle this crowd on this particular day because they were here to hear what the ancient of days had to say. And he was there to, to share a judgment. And look at verse 11, because he, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Judgment is coming and it's going to be final. It's going to be absolutely final. Are you ready to meet the one whose judgment will be final? And even as we get this awesome picture of this judge. We can be tempted to be like, oh yeah, he, this judgment's going to happen. It's going to happen sometime in the future, but there's this disconnect for me because in my life right now, there's a lot going on. Things can be falling apart, particularly when things are falling apart. Whether you're a Christian who believes in God's word or you're skeptical of Christianity, there's oftentimes when you experience things in life and you say, where is God? Where is he? But a But the Bible does not describe a God that works on our timetable because we're tempted to say, well, God's not working or God's not working in the way that I want him to work right now. So there must not be a God. That's not the God that's described here. This is a God who's poised, who's measured. This is one who has always existed. This is one who is unstained by the world. How we long for someone like that. How we long for a judge that no one can say anything against them. He's seen every detail unfold. He doesn't need a prosecution and a defense attorney to tell him the case because he knows every detail. Our God reigns and he doesn't change And he will bring about justice. And you can know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. Your greatest enemy will be destroyed. We must not believe the lie that the individuals that we are in conflict with or those that may have roles in our work or in government that do things that we disagree with or that are hard for us or those that persecute us, we must not believe that they're the enemy because we wrestle not with flesh and blood. There is an enemy, and his days are numbered, and they will face judgment by the ancient of days. And it is absolutely certain. So we can live in the goodness of knowing that justice will be done. The enemy's not going to be just knocked locked away, and we wonder, "Well, is he going to get on parole? Is, is he just going to be let go? No. He's gonna be tossed in and there's no way out. There's no need to have a key that could be thrown away and found. No, there's no way out of that place where he will find judgment. So it is certain the ancients of days will bring a final judgment. But it is also certain that the son of man will be triumphant. That's the other, the third certainty that we see here in our text. The son of man will be triumphant. Take a look at verses 13 and 14. So again, I know there's a lot here. There's a lot of things here that are sobering for us. It started by things that were confusing for us to this judgment in this throne room where it happens and it's super serious. And now there's something that transitions that for us almost seems a little bit more clear, but for Daniel, it didn't seem that clear. Because Daniel saw in the night visions and behold, so this is verse 13 and 14, and behold with the clouds of heaven. So he he's, doesn't have a category for this. So someone, this individual is coming. There must be a divine figure because they're coming on the clouds of heaven. No one's in an airplane in this day. No one, none of that's happened. So someone's coming in the clouds of heaven and there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him. So Daniel, we, we read that and we kind of make some quick you know, uh, connections. If you know your Bible a little bit and we'll talk about this, the son of man, but here's the reality. Daniel doesn't have a category for someone who comes into the presence of God. Daniel knows that the temple where he prayed, remember, he, that's where he prayed. As we learned in chapter six, he was praying towards Jerusalem when he was praying before he was thrown in the lion's den, because that's where the temple was supposed to be. The temple is the place where God met with his people. And he was hoping for that day when the temple would be uh, uh, built again so that God would meet with his people. But he knew that It was a serious thing to go into the presence of God. He knew that all that the priests had to do to uh, cleanse themselves so that one could go into the presence of God. Because if you went into the presence of God and you weren't ready, you died. And so he's confused because there's someone that looks like us that is brought into the presence of God. And that someone has given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel's response in verse 15 is, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. And even as you flip to the last verse of the chapter, it says, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. He's freaked out by these realities. But those of us who are on this side of the cross won't have the same reaction as Daniel. We should be sobered by the things that we read, but the reality is, is we have encountered the Son of Man. The Son of Man was called the Son of Man <clears throat> because he was like us. He was like us. We know that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Mark Chapter 14, verse 62, Jesus said this, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds. The first century readers who knew their Bibles immediately remembered what Daniel was afraid of. They were in the presence of this Son of Man. And Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man 81 times as recorded in the Gospels. 41 times in Matthew alone. But this son of man wasn't just someone who came on the clouds, not just someone who rules high and just happens to look like us. No, Eugene Peterson does a good job of describing this son of man. This son of man has dinner with a prostitute. The son of man stops off for lunch with a tax collector. This son of man wastes time blessing children where there were Roman legions to be chased from the land. And this son of man heals unimportant losers and ignores high achieving Pharisees and influential Sadducees. This Son of Man, He dwelt among us. And this Son of Man was the one that we learn in Philippians that. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So yes, all serve him. His kingdom is everlasting. We should look to his kingdom. Even these last two certainties, we know, even though there's all three of them, you know, things are swirling around and there are beasts that are ruling, but we know that there's an ancient of days who's going to bring judgment. If God's our judge, are you ready to meet him? Are we ready to have the book opened? As it says here, the books were opened. Are we ready to have the book of life opened and the contents read for all to hear? Friends, our only hope is the Son of Man. Our only hope is Jesus Christ who took the judgment that we deserve for all of our sins. He was bruised for our transgressions. He faced the great beast and he won. There's no need for a recount. There's no need for judges to make a judgment about it. He won. Have you trusted in the Son of Man. Now, at the end of this chapter, as I've read, Daniel said his thoughts, in verse 28, you can look right there, his thoughts greatly alarmed him and his color changed. But he kept the matter in his heart. He was sobered again because he was seeing the vision of things that were going to happen in the future. And rather than his nation turning the corner, he saw hard things that were going to come. The reality is, friends, hard things have to come before we see the reality of the victory that will be won. The road ahead was hard for Daniel, and the road for us is gonna be hard. The call to follow Christ, friends, is not one of ease and pleasure. The call to follow Christ is one of sacrifice. We're called to take up our cross and follow him. So this message is for us today, like it was for Daniel and his people in that day. It's going to be hard in front of us. I don't exactly know what's going to be. Daniel didn't know exactly what that meant that he was going to be, but he needed to hold on. He kept the matter in his heart. We need to hold on to the truths that we find here. Because we see as we come to this passage, the challenge we face is not to figure out who the beasts are. Until Jesus' return, we can be absolutely certain that there are going to be rulers in this world that do everything they can to wear out the saints. They're going to do everything they can to wear out the saints of the Most High. Some of those beasts will have faces. They might be totalitarian governments. They may be persecutors in your life. They might be those who are treating you wrongfully. I don't know what their faces will look like, but I know that they want to wear out the saints of the most high, as it says. So the challenge is not to figure out who those are. The challenge every day is to fix our gaze on this heavenly throne room. That's the picture that we're given. Fix your gaze on this heavenly throne room to remember there will be a court and that court will sit in judgment. And so our challenge is to continually abide in the son of man. The the thing we look to as we look here is hold on to the son of man because he's been given authority We know that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. So let's fix our gaze on him. Let's fix our delight in him. Let's seek to abide in him. Let's spend time with him and delight in him and understand how much he loves us and understand that he's doing a work in us and he wants to do a work through us. Because we know that he won the victory on the cross and we know that Satan's end is is certain. The result of Christ's sacrifice is that regardless of what we face in this life, whether it be sickness or death or trials or monsters or unrighteous politicians or demons or the destruction of life as we know it. We know from Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am sure of this, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God the Father, the ancient of days, is our judge. But Jesus, the Son of Man, our Savior, came into the world and he saved us so that we don't have to be afraid of the monsters because they cannot touch us. Even when the worst comes, the best God has to offer will follow because of what Christ has done. So the interpretation of of the vision boils down to this. While ungodly and arrogant kings will continue to succeed one another on the world stage, don't be anxious and alarmed. God will see to it that his people will receive his everlasting kingdom. And let me leave you with something that Samuel Rutherford said on his deathbed. So Samuel Rutherford was a 17th century Scottish pastor. He was no stranger to suffering and persecution. As a young man, he was exiled by the church authorities from his beloved parish in Anwath in Southern Scotland for writing in defense of the doctrines of grace. And as an old man, When the monarchy was reinstated under Charles II, he was charged with high treason for his book in which he argued that even monarchs should be subject to the law. So a summons came to him. And when the summons came to him, he responded from his deathbed with these words. Tell them I have got a summons already before a superior judge. And it is my duty to answer my first summons. And before your day come, I will be where few kings and great folks come. He wasn't worried about the summons from this life that was coming to him because he trusted in the summons that already had come to him that called him out of darkness into light. His hope was placed in the knowledge that there would soon come a time when this present world will have run its course and it will be replaced by a better one. The day is indeed hastening and when the sands of time will run out and the beasts will face their judgment. But for the saints, glory will dwell forever in Emmanuel's land in the land where God who came and dwelt among us, where that king will rule. And that is our hope and our certainty. Though we may be discouraged that the beast will continue to rule, we know that the ancients of days will give a final judgment. And we know that the son of man will be absolutely victorious and he will rule in a kingdom that will have no end. So in the midst of these times that seem uncertain and things seem to be confusing at times, we can come to God's word, even when God's word seems to be something that we aren't quite sure that we understand, let's press in because God has revealed himself to us in his word. And even in the places that seem confusing, He's made things clear so that we will put our hope and our trust in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I know, Lord, that we are in uncertain times, but you are an unchanging and certain God. Would we come to know you as the ancient of days. Would we know you as a loving father? Would we be intimate with your son and abide in him? Lord, thank you for opening your word to us this morning. And I pray, Father, that we would treasure the truths that we have found here and hold them dear and hold on tight. And would we live today in light of that day as we eagerly await when that endless kingdom will be initiated and brought into being and that we will have no fear because it will have no end or meet us today. We ask this Lord in Jesus name and all God's people said,
0: amen. Thank you for listening to the harvest Lake shore sermon podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.